You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Before I dive into my conversation with Sully, just a couple quick things. Many of you tuned in last week to hear my conversation with Mike Arigetti at Aries about the banking crisis, about the Fed rate decision today, and a bunch of other things. If you missed that, I would strongly suggest going back into the archives and pulling that one out because Mike was incredibly insightful as it relates to the credit markets and what's going on today. It's obviously nice to see some stability in the banking sector. And uh, most of the regional banks traded on the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ were up quite strongly yesterday after Secretary Yellen's comments about deposits implicitly, not explicitly, being guaranteed by the federal government should we have another bank failure. I, at some point, will have someone on to discuss and debate that policy decision and where we actually find ourselves from a safety and soundness of the banking system and the risks that people will take or not take as it relates to that implicit guarantee. But we'll get to that at a future discussion. All eyes are on Chairman Powell today to see what he does. I think from many, many conversations on this topic with lots of experts and trying to listen as carefully as I can, if we get 25 basis points, everyone should take a sigh of relief. 50 would be a little bit strong following the lead of Europe. And many people thought that Christine Lagarde and the ECB had gone too far on their 50 basis points last week. And as much as zero and no change might rally the markets, what I have heard is that that might say that the banking sector is more fragile than many of us suspect. And that if the Fed were to pull back that dramatically, that that actually is probably a pretty bad sign for the overall markets and the health of the banking system in the United States. But we will keep watching that going forward and have plenty of discussions on it in future Walker webcasts. Today, we turn to a very different topic. We turn to entrepreneurialism. We talked about the outdoor clothing industry. We talk about the outdoors We might get to talking about climate and what's driving the change in our climate and some other things. My guest today is Stephen Sully Sullivan. He is an entrepreneur and experienced chief executive with a long professional tenure in the outdoor, snow sports, and fly fishing markets. He is, by his own LinkedIn page, a skier, angler, cyclist, trail runner, rancher, and apparel guy. I like, Sully, that all those other things come in front of being an exceedingly successful apparel guy, and we'll get into that. He is the founder and CEO of Steo, and he also happens to be a youth sports transportation professional, and we'll come back to that as a qualifier in a moment. Many of us, I think, have become youth sport transportation professionals throughout our lives. Sully, first of all, welcome, and and second, let's start here. We'll rewind the clock a little bit and begin with your family moving from Ann Arbor, Michigan to Grand Junction, Colorado, when I believe you were 10. Talk about your green tracksuit and how that pulled you towards the apparel industry. Willie, thanks so much for having me. It's super fun to be with you today. When I moved to Colorado, I was going into fourth grade, and I really felt 
that I wanted to kind of have a uniform. I probably should have gone off to some prep school or to military school like my dad, my grandfather had, because I really liked the idea of having a uniform. And I I fell in love with this green Adidas tracksuit that I forced my mom to buy me. And I literally wore it every single day of fourth grade. And it became kind of my persona at school that, that I was the green tracksuit guy. And I think it was also a way to just kind of stand out a little bit and meet new people. And it did really, in some odd way, lead me to this idea that apparel had such an impact on your personality and, and your life. And so I think that was probably a part of the genesis of me being interested in the apparel business. And then that was combined with a kind of newfound understanding slash appreciation for the out of doors. I think it was your uncle who really introduced you to the out of doors. Where did the two of you go and what sports did he introduce you to? Yeah, my uncle had actually moved out to Colorado prior to my my mom and my sister and I. And he was an attorney. He went to the University of Michigan Law School and he decided that he was going to be the first real ski bum attorney. And so he moved to Aspen at first. Then Aspen was really small in the 70s and he realized that there wasn't a lot of work there. And so he ended up moving down to Grand Junction, which is where we moved. And he was just an exceptionally avid outdoor guy. He loved to be in the mountains. He loved to hike. He loved to backpack. He loved to fly fish. And we started off doing a, an annual Labor Day trip up into all the different mountain ranges, mostly around western Colorado in the San Juans, the Wemenuch Wilderness down there near Durango around the Gunnison area. And we did backpacking trips every Labor Day. And that started to extend into my uncle and I starting to climb some 14ers together. And he's the first person that taught me to fly fish. And it just really opened my eyes, especially coming from a kid that was living in a fairly urban kind of setting in Ann Arbor. I was a hockey player and, and a soccer player when I was a kid. And when I moved to Grand Junction, there was no hockey. And so I I was super disappointed. I think I'd never let my mom forget that, actually. But I got into skiing instead and got into hiking and then climbing. And so that move to Colorado was what really kind of opened my eyes to being out in the wilderness. I think it was your uncle's girlfriend who had a retail store that was your first job and your first real exposure to retail. What did you learn either about work or retail in that first job at uh, Lewis and Clark? Yeah, Lewis and Clark was arguably one of the first probably 40 or 50 true outdoor retail stores in the United States. And my uncle's girlfriend, Betsy Clark, had started the store. And the store was mainly focused around hiking and cross-country skiing. Those were the two big activities. And I fell in love with the whole process of helping a customer find something that they could use in the outdoors that was going to serve them, whether, you know, protect them from the elements or or a ski that was going to work for them the best. And I I really fell in love with retail. And I learned a lot of lessons from Betsy. She was an extremely good retailer and operated that store for, I think, 10 or 12 years. She actually moved on from that and became a, a lobbyist in the state legislature for outdoors. And so I think it just sparked the love I had of connecting with people around common outdoor activities. And that led me to moving on into working more outdoor retail as I went through college and and then into my time in Jackson. So I'm going to run through a little bit of your history that gets you back to Jackson. So you were a biker and you worked in a bike shop. So you got some exposure to the biking world. Then you went to Fort Lewis College. 
You moved to Boulder after college and worked for Wave Rave. And then you moved to San Francisco for a year and you said enough of this. And were you following your surfing passion, Sally? I think you really liked surfing. Surfing is one of those sports that is not part of the steel lineup. It's not part of anything that you've done with your life. But weren't you a passionate surfer as a teenager? I was. I mean, I got into it when I was about 19. I was a passionate skateboarder when I was young. I like to be into all sorts of different activities, but I was really into skateboarding. And and in college, I started dating a gal. Isabel Estes was her name. And her family was from San Diego. And so I ended up spending three summers during college in San Diego. And I was a self-taught surfer, which is a horrible way to learn to surf, by the way, because you just get beat up. But it's also a good way because you learn a lot. And then when I moved out to San Francisco, I surfed quite a bit at OB and, and down in Santa Cruz. And I love to surf, but I also think it's the hardest sport to learn. And you have to just put so much water time in. And I still go on trips with a group of guys here, usually once a year, and get to some cool destination where we can get a, a week or two in. I'm going to jump ahead and then come back. But on Steel, Patagonia has some surfing products and surf shorts and things like that. Does Steel have, have you focused on surfing at all? No, we have a water collection, but it's principally focused on mountain. You know, our whole company is based on mountain. I think the reason Patagonia, Patagonia is based in Ventura, California. It's a surf culture backdrop to that whole brand. But we do talk about now there's a whole movement of surfing on the rivers. And so we do make product that is very versatile water sports type product that you can use to surf on the rivers. And that's become a huge thing here in Jackson, surfing the lunch counter rapid down on the snake, which I'll be full disclosure. I have not yet attempted. (laughs) I have a 20 year old son who's a big skateboarder and he comes down here to Denver and goes to the reservoir and hits the outtake of the reservoir and surfs for hours and hours and hours with his friends. So uh, clearly get that. So you moved from San Francisco back to Jackson. You taught skiing for a period of time. You worked in retail stores. You worked at skinny skis. And then you founded Cloudvale with some friends. I've heard you talk about the Cloudvale experience. And I think the thing I want to understand, first of all, would you explain, many people know Steo, may not know Cloudvale because it's a more of a niche brand. So explain a little bit about the products that Cloudvale made. And then I've heard you talk about that as the PE hamster wheel. So just talk through for a moment, forget about like the ups and downs of Cloudvale and how it all ended, but just why you deem that experience of Cloudvale, the PE hamster wheel? Well, Cloudvale was started by myself and and a guy named Brian Cousins, who's still a dear friend of mine. And we were exceptional business partners. We total yin and yang. I'm much more of a creative product, visionary-ish kind of person. And, And Brian was extremely strong on the ops and finance side. And we started that brand with, we put $100,000 in the bank. And so it was, a, you know, we cashed out a couple 401ks and, and we absolutely had zero idea what we were doing. All I knew is that I had found a textile and a friend of mine had brought back a pair of pants from Europe. And I'd found this textile that I thought it wasn't on the market. I thought there was a gap in the market. And it was really the, you know, beginnings of the whole soft shell category of apparel. We got about five years in, we self-funded. We were very fortunate to have some friends and family that invested in us. And Brian's dad was good enough to put up a CD at the bank so that we had a small like stealth ABL. And we were able to get the business up to a certain size. 
we were seeing a tremendous amount of momentum and we just didn't have the capital. And so year five, we went out and did a private equity deal. And we actually did it with a very small new PE fund, two principal guys, John Boris and Michael McGregor, who are both still friends as well. And that was what led to Cloudvale starting to grow pretty rapidly. And we got a couple of years in and everybody started getting a little more panicky because we kept outgrowing kind of our working capital base. And we've been getting a lot of interest from companies. And so we were approached by a group called Sport Brands International that was a holding company, a Cerberus Corporation. And Sport Brands International owned Fila. And they also had a couple of small brands, European women's brand called GSA and another brand called Motionware. And they wanted to plug us into their platform. And I was the only abstaining vote. I did not want to do the deal and because I just felt it was too early and et cetera. But anyway, we did the deal. And that really started just going through having to transition and change all of our systems and relook at our whole team. And then two years into that, Fila actually sold to the South Korean distributor. And so they disbanded Sport Brands International. So we were technically without a home, although Cerberus was still helping fund us at the time. We went off and found a new partner in Spider Skiwear, who we had actually spoken to previously. And irony abounds because during my time in Boulder, I had actually spent a couple months working in the warehouse at Spider 14 years prior to this. And so it was it was pretty funny. And I knew Jake Jacobs and Dave Jacobs. Dave was the founder and Jake was his son that was CEO. And that was actually a, a pretty damn good deal. We had very similar cultural kind of backdrops and it was going very well. We transitioned and kind of conjoined very well, but very quickly the parent company of Spider decided they wanted to try to sell the whole thing. And this is in 2008 when everything is not going so well. And they had a, a deal that ended up falling through. And then basically Apex Partners, that was the, the lead private equity fund, came in and decided that all the C's in the organization on the spider side weren't doing a great job. And so they brought in Alvarez and Marcel and had just gone through a transition. And then I get into a transition service company comes in and starts running around and trying to change everything again. And the new CEO of Spider came in and offered to let me try to buy Cloudvale back. And I spent about seven months trying to do that with a great financial partner who's my lead investor today. And we got left at the altar and that was that. I definitely learned a lot though. It was a great learning experience. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about some pretty big names and some pretty big brands in there and private equity firms and things of that nature. And I mean, here's an apparel company that was founded in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, that all of a sudden is sort of on the international scale, international investors, international brands. And we're going to talk about the competitive landscape in a moment, Sully, when we get into Steo. But let's fast forward to Steo. And you founded the company on my birthday in 2012. And not that my birthday had anything to do with you founding it, but I just thought it was interesting that April 5th was the day that you actually launched Steo. You launched it to have a direct connection with customers and you wanted to launch a, a B2C brand. And we're going to talk in a moment about all the other things that are in the Steo brand. But I mean, after that experience with Cloudvale, my question is, 
What was it that made you wake up one morning and say, the world needs another outdoor apparel brand? I mean, there was Patagonia and there was North Face and there was Helly Hansen. And we're going to talk about that competitive landscape in a moment. But what was it that said, I can win here. I can make a differentiated product, which you have done. But I'm just trying to rewind to 2011 to 2012 on April 4th, the day before you launched it, saying, we can make this thing run. You know, I, I think there was a lesson in the Cloudvale days that was very eye-opening to me. As that Cloudvale business evolved, retailers started just buying us for segmentation, right? They just buy your hard sell, your soft shell, your fleece, your base layer, whatever it might be. They weren't buying our more creative product. But we also had one retail store during the Cloudvale days here in Jackson. And we found at that retail store that customers were buying the more interesting product. We made some fairly eclectic product that had a western flair might have something but it was still outdoor and there was something that stuck in my mind that i wanted the customers to start deciding what to buy when you're in the wholesale business you've got the middlemen of your internal sales team your sales reps and then you go to the retailer and then you go to the customer and you sell in eight months before you deliver the product and then you deliver the product and it has to sell through for three or four or five months and you don't get any feedback until literally over a year. There's a year's gap there. And I felt like there was an opportunity to launch a more creative line, a line that also encompasses more of the totality of the mountain life. So Cloudville is mostly about the top of the mountain and Steo is more about the totality of the mountain life, everything from the boardwalk to the top of the mountain. And I also felt there was an opportunity to let the customer decide what they wanted. And that's what really drove me to start Steo and to start Steo in a direct consumer business model. So you opened on day one, a retail store, you published a catalog, and you also launched your website. I mean, it sounds like that was very different from Cloudvale in the way that you distributed Cloudvale. I'm assuming that that required more capital to at the start, which is one of the reasons why you had an advantage of both the experience as well as the capital you had to be able to put in to be able to open up a store at the same time as do the catalog and also do the online presence and then also obviously make the product? Yes, I, I had street cred and it, it was my second rodeo, not my first. And so I actually went out and raised a significant amount of capital to start the business. The direct consumer business is quite a bit more expensive as a launch pad than it is to start a wholesale business. And so I knew that I needed a certain amount of capital to kind of get proof of concept kind of through the first 18 months. And then I would go out and raise more capital. But I think you, you keyed in on something that was really important. And to me, doing all three of those things at once was incredibly impactful, I think, for our brand, because I was really concerned that if we didn't have that brick and mortar physical presence, and we also have the advantage of being in a town where I happen to know everybody, I got a great retail location, we get 5 million people through here a year, so there's a customer base. And I felt like that also kind of solidified the brand more so than if we were just a digitally native direct consumer business out there schlepping product. We actually had a physical location you could come visit. And I think that made a tremendous impact as we were starting. But actually, we're opening our ninth store tomorrow in South Lake Tahoe and, and have another one in Bozeman under development right now. And so brick and mortar was a kind of a foundational piece of the puzzle for me, even though it's 
it's a very small percentage of our overall sales. It's only about 10 or 12% of our overall revenue. It's still super foundational to the experience of the brand. You've talked about catalogs are super important and the amount of sales and customer acquisition you get through catalogs is still, I believe, your highest channel. Then you've got your website and then you've also got the stores. And I've heard you talk about sort of the haptic touch, the the ability for the consumer to actually kind of feel the product, understand what the product represents. How do you do that in your online presence? I get it. Someone's looking at a catalog and turning the pages. I totally get it going into the retail store. But what have you done online, if you will, to create that sort of customer experience that gets the Steel brand? I think the online thing is just quite a bit different. I think you need to provide a broader range of content online. So you you obviously can't get the physical haptic touch like you can when you touch a catalog or when you touch a product in a store. And so what we've focused on on our website is creating a lot of content around each product and around our brand so that people understand where we're coming from and they understand the product and kind of our point of view and whether it be the product innovation or whether it be the product style or whatever it might be. But it is much harder in the digital world to kind of create that same type of environment. It's also quite expensive. You get into a lot more production costs and catalog is still the biggest driver for us. We're a a very heavy cataloger. It's still our best customer acquisition tool. We have our best lifetime value with catalog customers and people really look forward to it now. I love your catalog. It's fantastic. I guess the question I'd say to ask there, Sully, is this. The Patagonia catalog for decades has been sort of this, you know, many people look at the Patagonia catalog not to buy the clothes, but to look at the fantastic photographs. How did you say we're going to differentiate ourselves from that and that image that Patagonia has been able to create in their catalogs to make a differentiator for someone to actually want to buy Steo? I think that gets into a little bit of the, the title you kind of presented for us, and that is that we are a mountain company. We're the only company of this of the size and scale we are today based in a mountain community. And one great thing about the pandemic for me is it opened up the distributed workforce. And so we have about half our corporate employees live in Jackson and half of them live around the rest of the country now, but which is, you know, has plenty of challenges. But I think that the whole foundation of our business is around mountain. And so that's like the key word in our vocabulary. Most of the other apparel companies in our space are not based in mountain communities. And a lot of them are based in coastal communities. And so they come from just a totally different perspective than we do. And I think that perspective of literally having this inherent authenticity by literally living this lifestyle every day. I skinned up the king this morning before this podcast with one of my new employees who's a a great new product line manager that we just hired. And I can't tell you how much that resonated with him. And it was just the two of us. We invited a bunch of folks and only the two of us showed up. And and here's this guy that's fresh out just starting and he gets to go skin up Snow King. It was great skiing this morning, by the way. And I'm jealous. And there's just this inherent authenticity because we live this in our daily lives. I'm on skis 80 to 100 days a year on average. And it's just because a lot of it is just a quick skin up snoking like my daily workout. And I fish and I mountain bike a ton and I hike and I trail run. And so I think all those things, because our entire team is involved in that mountain community, 
it makes for better product and it makes for a more real experience. You know, the classic statement that you can't fake real really is what we live by here. So those are two of the advantages of being in Jackson Hole. Talk about some of the disadvantages of being in a small mountain community. Jackson has a great airport, so accessibility isn't as challenging as it would be somewhere like Sun Valley, Idaho, or others that have Harder or Aspen. That, But the cost of living is extremely high. Taking snow days, I'm assuming, happens on a very frequent basis. So what, what about the downside, if you will, of being in a mountain community? I don't consider the snow days the downside, but um, <laughs> nor do I. Uh, nor do I. But if I was trying to get a project yeah. done, I think I'd look at it differently. Yeah, the downside is that the shine is off. The shine is off the Jackson Holes and Athens as far as a place where you could actually go and live and and have a real meaningful career. We have a a ton of exceptional employees that don't live here, and I wish they could. But our median home price is two point five million dollars, and so we do have a good contingent of folks that live over in Victor and Driggs, Idaho, which is, as you know, right over Teton Pass from us. And that is quite a bit more affordable, but it's still not affordable in the in the relative context. And so there is a huge challenge now, I think, with the distributed workforce and everything that's happened in the last couple of years of getting that quality day-to-day time together, because I think so many ideas get germinated and find their place through that daily connection. And so we spend a lot of time facilitating team interaction, whether that's both online and then we also on a quarterly basis make sure that each one of our individual teams are getting together no matter where they're coming from. We are absolutely blessed with the airport service here. I mean, we have direct flights to 12 major cities from Jackson. So it's fairly easy to get in and out of here, except for the weather, obviously. Um, on occasion but that's really what we've done as the workaround is just really try to push to facilitate this this team interaction so before we move off of being based in jackson and sort of the early days because i want to move next into just the products you have and the colors and the branding and the competitive landscape and all that great stuff but given the banking crisis going on in america right now i was watching cnbc this morning sally and My friend David Faber was sitting there talking about some of these regional banks, and he was saying, you know, these market caps are insignificant. And I'm sitting here in my mind going, well, that's because they're A, under massive pressure. First Republic has fallen from a multi $10 billion company down to, I think it's got a market cap of $4 billion today, maybe it might be a three. But the point being is that these banks are fundamental to entrepreneurship and to startups like you did with Steo. Did you have a banking relationship in Jackson that helped you as you grew the company and had to go to a local banker and say, you know, I got to extend my line of credit or what have you? You talked about your, I think it was your father of your founder of Cloudvale who put a CD up against so that you guys could borrow against that and get a line of credit. I'm assuming that there's some bank in Jackson or a regional bank that you all have used consistently that has been sort of the lifeblood of the growth of Steo. Is that a correct assumption? No, we at first banked locally with U.S. Bank. We raised equity for a pretty significant amount of equity over the course of the first four or five years, which funded our growth. We could not get an ABL. And the reason was we didn't have any purchase orders or receivables because we were a direct consumer business. So we got our first ABL in 2000, probably 16 or 17. We actually banked with JP Morgan. They've been a tremendous partner came very close to doing a deal with Silicon Valley Bank. 
a couple of years ago and exceptionally thankful we didn't. Hindsight's uh, 20-20 vision. I love it. But I got know, it. We, so we that's that's great. And and yeah. obviously you had the size and scale to get JPM to pay attention to you. Yeah. And they've been an unbelievably good partner, very creative, very attentive, just a really great partner. They're really great people, really have enjoyed the relationship. In fact, all of our main guys were out here just last week and we took them skiing at the mountain. And they actually really ponied up on the skiing too. We got a couple headwall laps and a, an out of bounds lap with them and the whole deal. This is a great PR plug for JP Morgan. I'm assuming that you are the JP yeah. Morgan team's favorite client. They're like, oh, let's go check in on Sully and Steo. Got to make sure that our that, <laughs> that our that our line of credit's in good shape right now. And they're sitting in the office going, this thing is gold, but we still can go out there and, and pay him a visit and make some laps in Jackson. I love it. Yeah. There does always seem to be skiing, fishing, or mountain biking involved. Yeah, that's great. So let's talk for a moment about Steo, the products, the scale, the competitive landscape. So you have, I believe, 250 different products, if you will. I I, I heard you use a term in a in another interview where you called them styles. But so you've got 250 plus styles in skiing, snowboarding, hiking, running, biking, climbing, lifestyle, fishing, and paddling. And as you said, have said a number of times, Sully, it's really that mountain focus that really differentiates the Steo brand. As I think about mountain, I also think about hunting. There's an ad that's running here in Colorado that says that the hunting and fishing industry brings as much into Colorado as the ski industry does. And I'm just curious, the hunting vertical no interest in going into it, a difficult one to penetrate, or isn't consistent with the Steel brand? I think all of the above. We just don't have a lot of hunters in our organization. And although I have absolutely nothing against hunting and have plenty of friends that hunt and have done a little hunting myself, it's just not core to what we do. It's also, it is very hard to penetrate. You have to be very authentic and going into that market. And if you look at the brands that are really successful, like Sitka and Kuyu, those are extremely authentic brands, all the products developed by hunters, and we're not hunters. So that's why we haven't moved into that focus at all. Yeah. So one of the big differentiators of Steel is your colors. And I love your colors, absolutely adore them. But I also have a 20-year-old son who is a skier snowboarder who typically wears baggy black on black and probably would never get caught dead at his age wearing a steel lime zest exploit hooded jacket. How do you differentiate, if you will, of what the target market is and what the colors and styles are and saying you want Willie Walker versus Jack Walker as a client of Steel? We're just starting to get into customer segmentation in our collection. We focus on really clear, crisp, bright colors. That's been something that's been kind of a foundational part of our range. But we are starting to move. Like I have a new collection called the Figment that next year I um, make sure Jack gets a, a setup because you'll get it when you see it. Like it's definitely more targeted to a younger consumer, the more free ride consumer, the colors are more muted and more neutral. And so the customer segmentation to us, we've really focused on building our collection first and then you see which customers kind of resonate with it. And then as as you find, and now we have a tremendous amount of knowledge about our own customer base. And so now we can start looking outside of that. You know, the next 
real target market for us. Our average customer is between 35 and 55 years old, and they have a certain level of disposable income and education and all the rest of the metrics. We are now starting to focus more on that millennial consumer a little more and trying to pull them up to the brand. And so you do have to start to look at style segmentation and what you can do to draw them into a collection. And beyond color, Sully, the fabrics that you use, you list on in a letter that I read, you know, Polartex, Scholar, Paratex, and Torre. You've just done a new deal with Gore-Tex. First of all, I can't believe that Gore-Tex is still around. Not that I know anything about the company or the management of the company, but it felt like Gore-Tex was new technology back in the 1970s. And the fact that Gore-Tex is still innovating as it relates to fabrics is just fascinating to me. They're still innovating and creating new stuff that obviously you think is cutting edge because you just signed a deal with them. We did. And one of the funny things, most people don't know this, but Gore-Tex doesn't make fabrics. Gore-Tex makes films and they make the films that adhere to the fabrics. And so they actually buy fabric from people like Scholler and Polar Tech and Torre, who are the main mills that we work with. But Gore-Tex makes a, a really wonderful waterproof breathable laminate. And so they also have done a tremendous job of marketing their technology. There's a lot of new stuff going on in the world too, to eliminate PTFE films are not incredibly environmentally they're not very good for the environment, just straight up. And so now they're moving to EPE films. And so they've been a leader in kind of the sustainability side. And that's one of the reasons we were really interested to start working with them. They were one of the first people that used a water-based DWR. And if your uh, listeners out there don't know what a DWR, essentially DWR is the finishing treatment that goes on the outside of the textile that helps the water bead off. And all those solvents that used to be used were incredibly bad for the environment. And so all the textile manufacturers have moved over to water-based and Gore was a leader in that movement. So we felt like they were the right partner from a marketing standpoint, from a technology standpoint, and from a sustainability standpoint. And so we just started that relationship. This is our second full year working with Gore. And, and we now have an apparel and glove license with Gore. And so from a manufacturing standpoint, at least the apparel that I have says made in Vietnam, is the majority of your clothing made offshore in Vietnam? And beyond that, during the pandemic, supply chain issues, did that back you up and talk for a moment about the demand for outdoor apparel during the pandemic and either supply constraints that you had or not as the case might have been? The demand for outdoor apparel during the pandemic was unbelievable. And we had a, a tremendous couple of years of growth. The supply chain was an absolute nightmare. And not just from shutdowns in both Vietnam, China, but we build our products in eight countries now. And we basically build product as close to the textile as we can. So we find the most proficient factory as close to the textile so that we take out kind of the carbon footprint of shipping textiles all over the place. So we build in Vietnam, China, we do most of our knits in El Salvador, and we do some knits in the United States, Canada, Turkey, Cambodia. So we basically are, we spread it out based on kind of all the logistics around construction of a garment. The pandemic was tremendously impactful, though, 
from a supply chain standpoint. I mean, basically, lead times on on the water from China or Vietnam went from 28 days to 128 days. And you have to fund that product that entire time it's crossing the ocean, right? So that's, again, another little plug for JP Morgan, who worked with us really closely during that period of time to actually help us with all the correct funding. And factories were shut down on and off constantly. Transportation to factories was really hard in El Salvador, like the workers couldn't get to the factory. So we shared the cost of like transportation with some other companies to get our workers to the factories. There was just so much creative activity during that period of time just to get our product to market. And it was very, very, very challenging. And did the D2C direct-to-consumer model help or hurt during that period of time? Because if I walked into Dick's Sporting Goods and you were distributing through Dick's and there wasn't a Steo jacket there for me, I'm like, well, there's no Steo jacket. I'll go find some other brand and I might not have a sort of a negative experience. If I've gone and ordered directly from you and I thought it was going to come in two weeks and it ends coming in two months, I might have a sort of a negative feeling about Steo. Did, did that actually hurt or help you in the sense of having that direct relationship with the customer? I think, well, first and foremost, we don't put any product up for sale on our website until it's ready to ship. And so that's a huge, some people do pre-order. We just don't do that because we, we think it's just, we want to surprise and delight customers. We don't want them to have a disappointment. I think the DTC model helped a lot during that period of time because I wasn't encumbered with the fact that I had to ship to all these retailers. And you, we can adjust our marketing somewhat on the fly to some extent. You know, there are pretty long lead times on things like catalogs, but a lot of our digital marketing, we could adjust on the fly. So if a product didn't show up when it was supposed to, and a lot of them didn't because of this longer lead time, we would just market what we had. We basically sold what we had. And so that I think was a huge benefit of being in the direct consumer business because I didn't have that encumbrance of not being able to get my orders out the door to the retailers. So the competitive landscape, Sully, is pretty fierce. And not that there isn't a strong competitive landscape in every industry and in, in every sort of niche of an industry, but you're going up against both some very significant brands and then also brands that sit inside of major multinational companies. So for instance, you know, Heli Hansen's owned by Canadian Tire and North Face is owned by VF Corp and Anta owns Arcteryx and Dassant. How as an independent, privately held company based in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, do you compete with these global companies that have A, seemingly unlimited capital, B, huge marketing budgets, and C, all of those things that we've just talked about, of the slowdown in production times and lead times and, and supply chain issues, I would assume that they were able to apply pressure, get things delivered in a way that potentially, because you don't have the scale of them, you couldn't get things done. It's amazing the success you had. And I'm just fascinated by how you built this great brand going up against such strong competitive headwinds. That's a great question and one I get asked frequently. And I feel that it comes all the way back to, we've built a brand of inherent authenticity and people are resonating with that. I don't think we were on any of their radar until just a few years ago when the business, you know, kind of in the outdoor space, if a business starts to surpass 50 or $60 million in revenue, like it starts to get on the radar, we'll be north of a hundred million in revenue this year. So I know we're on the radar now <laughs> because I hear from some friends and the other companies, 
but I think you'll start to see more true competition where people will come and they'll take harder looks at our product line and try to mimic things that we do really well and do them better and cheaper. You know, the classic scenario of kind of what we call R&D in the outdoor industry is the rip off and duplicate. And uh, we've countered that, I think, by starting to extend our category range. So for example, we just launched footwear this last fall. And we really found we feel like this white space in footwear that wasn't being addressed. And the footwear launch was incredibly successful. So we just try to stay ahead of it and try to keep innovating, try to keep coming out with creative product. I think by controlling kind of all of our own distribution for the most part, we do have about 100 wholesale partners now, and they're all tremendous folks and great partners but we still control the vast majority of our own distribution. And so that helps a lot in the competitive world. And we're also extremely good at direct consumer. Our core competency is direct consumer. So we're a very highly analytical business. We have 12 or 14 analysts on our team between inventory planning and financial planning and marketing analytics. And that's what we focus on day in and day out. And we know how to do the direct business really well. I think probably better than most of those other competitors because that was the core competency from the beginning. So that's a huge strategic advantage for us. And now we have more customers that want our products. And so like the wholesale business is starting to grow. We're gonna launch international in the near term. And so I don't know the magic secret sauce of how, we, how we're how competing so well or how we've grown the business so nicely, other than to say, I think we build beautiful product from a mountain perspective, and we're, we're very good at, at bringing that to the consumer. It's really interesting to hear you talk about that, Sully. I, I was watching Heard on the Streets this morning, and Jim Cramer was talking about that he has the two founders of On, the the shoe company coming on tonight onto his show. And he basically said, as he was making a plug for it, Nike should be concerned about on and not as concerned about either Under Armour or Adidas because on is this niche brand that is going to just decimate Nike. Now, Jim was trying to hype his show and trying to get people to tune into why on was the brand that so many people are buying. But I see lots of parallels between Steo and on as it relates to a brand that is really dedicated to it knows what it wants to be. It creates products that it knows their customers want. And rather be kind of the broad brand like Nike is of something to everyone, you're much more focused on the product for the client base that you're very targeted at. I think that's exactly correct. I'd love to be as big as on. They grew tremendously fast over the last 10 years. We were one of the first wholesale on dealers in the United States, by the way. I had a friend from Switzerland that brought a pair over and I got obsessed with them. And and so we carried them in our stores for quite a while until we launched our own footwear. They're a great parallel. They're, they focused a little more, I think, on the technology of the sole and how that differentiated them. And they've really been able to scale that through wonderful artistic direction, creative direction. They've done a great job with their branding but you're absolutely right. They're very core to who they are. And that's what we are. We're a mountain company. I'm not trying to be an urban company. I have a lot of urban customers that buy our stuff. And we obviously market to those urban customers because we're trying to show them the experience they can have in the mountains. And we think we're the, you know, the most core authentic brand for that. And so 
that's our entire focus. And we're not trying to be everything to everybody. We're trying to be a mountain-based outdoor apparel and accessories company. I believe that Roger Federer is an investor in on, and it just makes me think about athlete sponsorship. Have you, I'm assuming you've looked at that time and time again. I don't know whether you have any athletes that are sponsored, but it, it makes me think about the brand of Steo, either sponsoring athletes or not sponsoring teams or not, or sponsoring, not sponsoring, but supplying mountain professionals like the Jackson Hole ski guides and ski patrol. Talk for a moment about that of either sponsoring athletes, not, and then how you push the brand beyond just target marketing. Yeah, we already sponsor a tremendous number of, we do some ski areas, we do quite a few ski patrols. We have about 50 ambassadors and our ambassador pool is a little bit different. It's not just focused on pure athletics, although we have people as high up as Paula Moltzan, who's one of the best U.S. technical skiers on the U.S. ski team. She was right there with Michaela Schifrin this year. And we have people like that, but we also take it all the way down to outdoor educators and people that come from different backgrounds. It's more about people that exude our lifestyle. And we haven't gotten into the focused, highly paid influencer business. I think North Face is probably the most preeminent among those. You know, They have these incredible athletes that have tremendously large social followings. And so they, they use that really effectively you know, all the way up to the Jimmy Chins of the world, for example, who's a friend and a great guy, but we can't afford Jimmy. <laughs> I can tell you oh, that. You could have, um, you could have five years ago before he made all those great movies, but it's uh, I don't know. I don't know if I could have even afforded him. He, he's been doing pretty well with the North Face for quite a while, but I wish I would have booked him back when I knew him in the skid days 20 years ago. But we are starting to look into bringing in some higher profile people and elevating kind of what we do with ambassadors. But at the same time, what we do, we also have a, we have a hometown group. So we have this program where people can apply to become kind of a junior ambassador of the brand. And that's been really fun and pretty successful at adding influence. It is next step stuff though. The celebrity athlete endorsement game is a good one. And these days, because so many people pay attention to social media, and the influencers, the influencers of the world are starting to make real livings doing this and and they can help really drive a business. So it's something on our radar for sure. When I think about branding, I think about your Pinecone logo, which I've got on the back of my jacket right here that's yeah. next to my desk. And it's inspired by nature's perfect design. Talk about that for a second on how you pick the Pinecone and why it's so important as it relates to what Steo represents. The Pinecone came about through a number of conversations with a creative agency that we started working with early on, TDA down in Boulder. And when we started the brand, we definitely wanted something that was very tied to the Yellowstone ecosystem. We thought that was really important because it kind of locked us into Jackson. And we really latched on to the fact that the whitebark pine has become decimated by beetle kill, mainly through just the simple fact of climate change. You know, the climate has changed. I believe the climate's changing. And I can tell you just from the time I've lived in Jackson, we don't have those deep 40 below weeks anymore. That was what killed off the beetle. And once the climate started warming up, you've seen the devastation of whitebark pine being killed all over the Intermountain West. And so that pine cone is an abstraction of a whitebark pine cone. And that was something we really felt like kind of locked us in to our place. And so 
it's obviously a modern abstraction. So we wanted it to be modern. And whenever you're doing a logo, you have to think about all the particulars, like can it be embroidered easily and will it silk screen well or whatever it might be. And so we, we really locked into that. And that was the genesis of the logo. I love how it's on the back and not the front. I'm sure there's been lots of talk, debate, and discussions about where you would place the logo. But I, I have to say, when I'm skiing with other people who are wearing Steel apparel, just seeing the pine cone in front of me is a really, a really fun thing. It's almost common to look at it. Along those lines, Sally, one of your original goals was to build a sustainable business, and you have a trade-in policy that allows people to return their clothes to you and then get a discount on the next purchase. I guess there are two sides to that. One, the recycling effect of having people send back their lightly used clothing and get a discount on their next purchase. But the other thing is, do you learn from those returns about what people like and what people don't like? I don't know so much that we learn. I think you learn from general returns, like the bigger e-commerce return bucket. Because if you're in the direct consumer business, you know, we average about 18% returns. I mean, that's just how it works. And we do ask for for explanations when, you know, we have a little form you fill out. Was it too small, too big, whatever. We've learned more from that. No, what we've, what's been really cool about that is we not just receive the trade-ins, but we upcycle all that stuff and we have the Steo second turn. So we do have a used clothing component to our business. There's a lot of studies out there and, and we believe just from what's happened in our business that used clothing is become going to become more and more prevalent in a bigger and bigger business. And it's also a way to keep that stuff out of the landfills. You know, clothing clogs up a tremendous amount of the landfills in the United States. And we build our clothing to last. And so when people want to trade it in and maybe go up to the next color or it's a lightly used piece that we can recycle and repurpose and resell. And we work with a, a really great facilitator down in Denver, Boulder area that helps us with that. We feel like that's just a way to kind of keep the cycle moving. And there have been a couple of people that have really led the charge on that in our industry. And now it's become commonplace. I mean, everybody, Patagonia helped lead the charge. The North Face helped lead the charge. Arcteryx is doing it. We're doing it. I think pretty much everybody's upcycling these days. When you it just talk makes about, good sense. When you talk about all the competitors and doing something together, is there is it breakneck competition between you and the other brands, or do you collaborate on certain things? What's the you know, like I interface with my competitors from time to time. There's some who I'm a fierce direct competitor to and don't really want to talk to, and others who are sort of friendly competitors <laughs> who I exchange ideas with. How is it with those huge global brands? Do you interface with them or do you just keep them at arm's length? We don't collaborate with them on anything or really disclose a lot. But one of the great things about the outdoor industry is it's a very friendly industry. Even if there are some, like small legal disputes, like somebody might use a, a name. That's very common in our industry that somebody's accidentally poached one of your names. And so you send a nice little cease and desist. But but we, we've had those issues with people like Patagonia and the North Face, and they've all been resolved super amicably. And I know a ton of people at Patagonia, and I know a ton of people at the North Face and Arcteryx, and a lot of them I've skied with or fished with or done things with in the outdoors. I would say when it comes to competition, it's still a very fiercely competitive business, and we hold our cards pretty close to the vest. But one of the great things about the outdoor industry is just this kind of camaraderie of the purpose and that we're all making clothes for people to enjoy themselves in the outside. So... It is a pretty cool industry in that regard. 
So two final questions. One is I, I've heard you say that in the next 10 years, you want to be one of the outdoor industry's top five brands. What's fundamental to that? Is it getting to the level where you're hiring those sponsored athletes that we've just talked about and you can get that brand extension and growth? Is it being able to expand internationally in a way that you haven't been able to given capital constraints? What's the area that would make it so you can jump into that top five? A little bit all of the above. I think that we, because our brand has resonated so strongly and our brand has resonated not strongly just with like people in the Aspens and Park Cities and Ketchums of the world, but all over. And we mainly market to the urban population. So that's proven to us that the brand is working. We just opened a store in Boston as an example. And the first three months of that store's existence, it's one of our strongest performers. So it's really exciting to see that. I think moving into the international spectrum is going to be a big part of us growing the brand on a global level. We are completely domestic right now. We do not sell outside of the United States. And so Europe is a tremendously large market for outdoor goods. South Korea is a huge market, huge market for outdoor goods. So starting to get ourselves out and beyond our own little U.S. bubble. The expansion of, I think, our retail presence is going to continue to be something that helps us extend the brand as well. We're moving retail stores into really core high traffic markets with a lot of exposure. And that retail presence is a big deal. We see whenever, you know, it's kind of like the all tides rise theory, right? If if we put a store in Park City, our sales and e-commerce in Park City also go up. So it's really cool to watch that. So that'll be another key component to our expansion and then just keeping it rolling <laughs> I mean, about keep, it. Yeah, I about it. Yeah. keep at it is exactly yeah. right yeah. so my final question Sally yeah. you and Anna have three kids and in the bio at the beginning I said you were a professional youth sports transportation professional I certainly felt like one when my kids were all playing youth sports have you figured out how to like capitalize that and turn it into a profit center because I felt like an underpaid Uber driver for most of my time as a youth sports transportation professional no, I think there is a business there, though. I will say that, but I have not figured it out. But uh, my kids, unfortunately, didn't participate in any school sports. They, they're lacrosse hockey players and ski racers. And so I think I had a four-vehicle run that I didn't get through the warranty. I went through the warranty in one year. So I passed 36,000 miles a year. And that was back when they were all here. I've got one son in college now and, and a daughter in, in school back east and then my just my middle son here now. So it's it's calmed down a little bit, but it has been quite a journey yeah. <laughs> all over the Intermountain West and the United States. Well, it's been a true pleasure. I greatly appreciate you spending the hour. It's fascinating how you built Steo. Many, many congratulations on having built it so successfully. And here's to you achieving that goal of being a top five global outdoor apparel brand in the next 10 years. Thank you everyone for joining us today. I'm back next week with the CEO of Trek Bikes to continue on this theme as it relates to growth of companies. And actually it will be interesting to talk about Trek because Trek is a global brand and how John took a US brand and took it global. So hope you all will join us for that. Thanks again, Sully, and please give Anna my love. Thank you. Take Thank you. Great to see you, Willie.